Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 27 The Nawakia Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So we spent last time discussing Alp Arslan's rise to power. How after the death of Tukrul, Alp Arslan had defeated the other potential claimants to the throne and succeeded the founder of the great Seljuk Empire. We ended with his first great campaign to the west and the sack of Ani. And today, we will continue the story of the heroic lion and take him up to the place of what would come to be remembered as his greatest victory. The victory that would open Anatolia to the Turks and for which he will be forever remembered. In other words, we will end this episode by leaving the heroic lion about to march towards a place called Manzikert in the year 1071. Now predictably, Alp Arslan did in fact face early challenges to his authority after his triumphant sacking of Ani, but they turned out to be relatively easy to put down. Remember, he had only come to power a year earlier, and he had of course taken his armies with him when he rode to the west, which of course left a power vacuum in the east, the lands of Khorasan and Balkh that had been the base of his power and the power of his father Chari. As he had left Khorasan to travel to central Iran to win the throne, and then marched further west to invade Byzantine Anatolia, predictably, some of his eastern subjects had got it into their heads that this meant that their time had come. In Herat, the son of Musa Yabgu revolted. If you'll recall, Musa Yabgu had been the key leader of the Seljuks early on, but had then been outmaneuvered by Tukhrul and Chahri and had been stuck ruling Herat. Then, lords in Khutal and Saganyan rebelled. These were regions on the northern borders of Khorasan, near Transoxiana and the Karakhanid domains. If you remember, we last encountered Khutal all the way back in episode 13, where it was the stage for Suluk Khan's final campaign against the Umayyads. And so, Sometime after returning from Byzantine Anatolia victorious, Alp Arslan led a massive army back to Khorasan to reassert his control. We don't know when this campaign occurred exactly, other than it was likely in 1064, after his invasion of Georgia and eastern Anatolia. Alp Arslan first went to Khutal, where the emir was holed up in a great mountain citadel. According to Ibn al-Athir, the siege had begun before Alparslan came to join the besieging army from the west, but it did not succeed until the heroic lion himself personally led his troops. He dismounted and climbed the cliff. Many followed him, then went on before him in the field of battle. They fought pertinaciously. The lord of the fortress was on the battlements, urging his men to fight, when he was struck by an arrow from the attackers and killed. Alparslan received the surrender of the castle and all of his dominions. Now, how much of that is true and how much of it is royal propaganda is hard to say, but the end result is not in doubt. The revolt was quickly put down. From there, Alparslan marched south and defeated his uncle in Herat, but instead of killing him, he ordered that his life be spared. He was far less lenient when he ended the revolt in Saganyan a couple months later. After his troops stormed the rebel emir's palace, the emir was captured. He begged for his life and offered the heroic lion a large amount of gold if he would be merciful, but Alparslan reportedly said, This is not a time for trading, and ordered him executed. And so, by the end of 1064, the revolt against the heroic lion in the east was finished. Finally, his rule across the empire was unquestioned. Unfortunately, it would not last long. But things started off looking pretty good. According to Ibn al-Athir, 
Alparslan even crossed the river Oxus in 1065 to visit his great-grandfather Seljuk's tomb in Jant to pay homage. But this is almost certainly an invention. Jant at this time lay in the domains of the Karakhanids, and as we will see in a couple of episodes, there is just no way that Alparslan could have crossed the river with anything short of an army. But we do know that in 1065, just after securing his position in the empire, Alparslan attempted to appoint his son Melik Shah as his heir. Melik Shah had been made a commander in the Great Campaign in the West, largely to give him experience and legitimacy, and Alparslan no doubt hoped that this would be enough to win him the throne. Only one year into his reign, and the heroic lion was already planning for its end. So he gathered together all of his emirs, including many chieftains of the tribes in the city of Rai Khan near Nishapur, the birthplace of his Persian grand vizier Nizam ul Mulk. He brought forth his son Melik Shah and placed him on a mount and walked in front of him carrying a saddlecloth. This was an ancient, ancient Persian marker of sovereignty. He then made all of the assembled men take oaths of loyalty to Melik Shah and bestowed cloaks of honor upon them, again, in accordance with ancient Persian ceremonies. Then the khutbah, the Friday sermon, was ordered to be read in the name of Alparslan and Melik Shah throughout the empire. As a reward for their recognition, the great emirs of the state were given territories and lands to administer. Cleverly, Alparslan seems to have assigned lands on the frontiers of the empire. Maybe through thus empowering his emirs, he could bind them to the state and also expand the great Seljuk Empire even further. And importantly, this also kept powerful nobles away from the center of the state. Now all of this was actually a huge gamble. Remember the Turks did not, and indeed never would, develop an orderly system of succession. Right up until the end of the Ottoman dynasty, the state could go to any member of the ruling clan. But this feature of Turkish political theory was not particularly well-loved by many Turkish leaders. Tuchrol himself, enamored by the sophisticated Perso-Islamic political tradition, had of course attempted to appoint an heir. And Alp Arslan, though he had come to power through the traditional Turkish succession system, craved the stability that the more civilized Perso-Islamic system provided. And so like Tuhrul before him, he attempted to short-circuit the very succession system that had brought him to power. Hopefully, picking an adult son with some military experience would work better than his uncle picking an infant governed by a Persian eunuch. Naturally, he wanted his own favorite son to succeed him in the practice of the great Persian shahs of old. Indeed, I think we should see this desire to tame the wild Turkish succession system as part and parcel of the continuous cooking of the Seljuk dynasty, the Seljuk court becoming more and more Islamic, more and more Persian, in short, more and more sedentary. We can see this in how overtly Persian the ceremony appointing Melik Shah was. And as always, this continuous cooking of the court will of course continue to lead to conflict with the wild tribes upon whom the court depends. But this attempt to make Melik Shah his heir caused a more immediate problem, because sitting in Kirman, Alparslan's brother Kavort was having none of this. Kavort had been bitterly stewing in the southeast of Iran ever since his brother had defeated Kutalmish in the field and made his succession to Tukhril a fait accompli. As we discussed last time, though Kavort had taken Esfahan shortly after Tukhrul's death, the quick acceptance of Alparslan by the Iranian elites had convinced him that he could not really defeat his brother. So Kavort pledged his loyalty and slunk back to Kirman. No doubt, he was hoping to get another bite at the apple. In his own words, he demanded his share of the inheritance. So, of course, this ceremony appointing Melik Shah was incredibly provocative to him, and he was not going to sit there and take it. 
he raised the flag of revolt in Kirman by symbolically dropping Alparslan's name from the chutbah in late 1066. And so, in 1067, Alparslan assembled an army and rode towards Kirman, while Kavurts, of course, assembled his own armies. The battle between the two brothers that had been avoided four years earlier on Tuchrol's death was finally joined in June 1067. Alparslan's forces completely overwhelmed Kavurts' vanguard, routing them. They then pressed on towards the main army and Kavurts himself. Reportedly, when he and his army heard of the defeat of their advance guard, they were fearful and perplexed. They fled, every man thinking only of himself. Kavurts fled to a nearby castle and holed himself up. No doubt, he remembered the fate of their uncle Kutalmish and feared his brother's vengeance. But in a pattern of behavior we're going to see a pop-up again and again with him, instead of killing his enemy, Alparslan forgave him. Kavurt was even left in charge of Kirman. According to the historian Ibn Ulisir, Alparslan even granted beautiful gowns and Iktaf fiefs to Kavurt's daughters. Now, on some level, it's commendable that Alparslan forgave his brother, but it would also prove in this case to be a bit of a mistake strategically. There is a reason that every historian calls this episode the first revolt of Kavurt. That said, it is also likely that Alparslan's ability to actually kill his relatives was limited. Kavurt's popularity with the wild Turkmen tribes and the tribe's belief in the concept of clan sovereignty made Alparslan loath to do away with him permanently. And it might also be that Alparslan didn't really have time to deal with Kavort properly, because the very same year that he had defeated his brother's initial revolt, he was forced to ride back to the west. See, after Alparslan had sacked Ani and forced King Bagrat IV of Georgia to bend the knee and become a Seljuk vassal, Bagrat immediately began looking for a way to balance Seljuk power and extract himself from the claws of the heroic lion. And he decided to turn to Constantinople for aid. Now, before the coming of the Seljuks, the Georgians and the Romans actually had a quite tense relationship. As the Roman Empire conquered Armenia and incorporated the Armenian principalities directly into the empire, they butted up against the nascent kingdom of Georgia, and the empire, under the Macedonian dynasty, became again a great and powerful state, which of course began meddling in Georgian politics. The Romans invaded Georgia several times, threatened to invade several more times, and were constantly interfering in disputes among the Georgian nobles and in the succession to the throne of the kingdom. But the coming of the Seljuks and the defeats that they inflicted on both the Georgians and the Romans convinced both sides to come together to face this new threat. Diplomatic envoys scurried back and forth between Constantinople and the Georgian capital, and the terms of an alliance appear to have been reached. According to both Byzantine and Georgian sources, at some point following his initial defeat at the hands of Alparslan, Bagrat sent his daughter off to marry the co-emperor of Byzantium, Michael Dukas, which was a great, great diplomatic coup for Bagrat. Having his daughter marry the emperor of the Romans was quite a big deal, and it also shows the importance the Romans were now putting on their renewed relationship with Georgia and the threat they felt that the Seljuks posed. Thus strengthened in his alliance with the Byzantine Empire, by late 1067, Bagrat felt secure enough to stop sending tribute to Alparslan. Alparslan, of course, could not let this stand. And in any event, campaigns against Georgia were a good look for him. They both burnished his image as a Ghazi warrior prosecuting jihad, and it also provided a great outlet for his wild Turkmen tribes, allowing them to plunder and maraud, and it gave them fertile, non-Muslim lands in which to pasture their herds. So at the end of 1067, with his brother put in his place, more or less, Alparslan rode back to the west. A vanguard force led by the Turkish emir Savtekin rode out ahead of the main hordes 
to secure the route of the invasion. On his way west, Savtekin subdued a rebellious Kurdish emirate, the Shadadids, before marching into Georgia proper. Alparslan himself quickly joined the main army, and in early 1068 marched on the great Georgian city of Tbilisi itself. The city fell after a short battle outside of its walls, without even needing to be put to siege. The medieval Georgian chronicle reports, After three years, he, Alparslan, turned upon Georgia and filled the country with blood, capturing Tiflis, he gave it to the emir of Ganjak Patlun, that is to Fazlun, the emir of Ganja. Additionally, as the Seljuks entered into Georgia, two local minor Muslim emirs, the emir of Darband and the Shirvan Shahs, got into a little bit of a tiff. The emir of Darband even managed to capture the Shirvan Shah before Alparslan was forced to order Savtekin to discipline him. Hopefully, he would thereby gain control of the critical passes through the mountains that Darband controlled. With the submission of the emir of Darband, and with the great city of Tbilisi in his hands, Alparslan now stood as the supreme lord of the Caucasus, at least the southern side of them. He then moved north, into the area between Rostavi and Tiflis, which is in the south of the modern-day Republic of Georgia. A modern historian named A.C.S. Peacock, who is really the leading contemporary expert on Seljuk history, has basically proven that in all of the Seljuk invasions of the Caucasus, the Turks were above all concerned with finding pasturage. Always, the invasions were targeted against the places that had the best summer and winter pasturages. In this area, the valleys of southern Georgia was ideal for steppe nomads. As his men grazed their herds throughout the land, and Fazlan set himself up in Tiflis as a Seljuk vassal emir, Alparslan began to send further raids from Azerbaijan and Georgia deep into eastern Anatolia. But unfortunately, the Seljuks were not able to hold much of these newly conquered lands in Georgia. When Alparslan returned to Iran in 1068, the war between the emir of Derbend and the Shirvan Shahs of course reignited, and the emir of Ganja was quickly then drawn in. As these three Seljuk vassals fought, King Bagrat spied his chance and marched on Tbilisi. Though the emir of Ganja was able to raise a force 30,000 strong, King Bagrat and the Georgians defeated them in June 1068 and re-entered Tbilisi in triumph. But the Caucasus were of course of great importance to the Seljuks, both because war against the infidel burnished the Seljuk status as Ghazi warriors prosecuting the jihad, and because the Caucasus contained excellent pasturages. Alparslan would send Savtekin back to Georgia in 1069 to prosecute the war. But the heroic lion was not able to return to the West in 1069. Because yet again, in October 1068, just as Alparslan was finally settling down in Esfahan, he got news that his brother Kavort had yet again revolted. Kavort began his second revolt after getting to talking with the governor of Fars province, while Alparslan was preoccupied in Georgia. I'm sure very, very upset that he had to do this again, Alparslan mustered his forces and again rode to southeastern Iran. He dispatched Nizam-ul-Mulk to deal with the governor of Fars. Nizam-ul-Mulk arrived in Shiraz and put down the revolt in May and June of 1069, and succeeded in capturing the rebel governor. Meanwhile, Alparslan made it to Kirman and besieged the city of Berdesir, where his brother was holed up. When Alparslan received word that the governor of Fars had been captured, he publicly and ostentatiously pardoned him, and ordered that he be set free. When news reached Kavort that his ally had been defeated and pardoned, he realized that Alparslan was signaling that the struggle need not end in his death. And so Kavort decided to immediately send a letter to Alparslan begging for forgiveness, which Alparslan accepted. But it turns out that this was merely a distraction. Kavort simultaneously sent out letters to Seljuk forces in Kirman and managed to convince a portion to switch sides. Alparslan, upon learning of this, 
realized that he had to retreat and move back to Shiraz and then Esfahan. A series of letters then flew back and forth between the two brothers, and ultimately, Alparslan was forced to recognize Cavort's right to rule in Kirman and in a portion of Fars province. Though Cavort was forced to bend the knee and recognize Alparslan as his sovereign. Yet still, Cavort bitterly resented his brother, and this is still not the end of his attempts to gain the throne. Alparslan was now back in Esfahan, which was coming to replace Rey as the capital of the great Seljuk Empire. No doubt, he was exhausted. In essence, Alparslan has been like a ping-pong ball ever since the death of Tukhrul, first riding west to gain the throne and invade the Caucasus, then riding back east to put down a revolt in Khorasan, and then the revolt of Kavort, and then riding back west again to discipline the Georgians, and now riding back east again to deal with Kavort for a second time. But for now, with Kavort finally humbled if not removed, it seemed that Alparslan had succeeded in maintaining his position. He was still the sole ruler of the great Seljuk Empire. The war in the Caucasus was going well under Savtakin, his enemies in the east had been put down, and even if his rebellious brother was stewing in Kirman, he was no longer in open revolt. Perhaps Alparslan had even sorted out the problems of the messy Turkish rules of succession. His son Melik Shah was now, at least in theory, the recognized heir of the empire. And we can see here, in his desire to follow the Perso-Islamic tradition and appoint an heir, the other great legacy of Alparslan aside from his conquests. The beginning of entrenching and really building a centralized Seljuk state, a project run by the capable Nizam ul-Mulk that would reach its fruition during the reign of Melik Shah. So as Alparslan sat in Esfahan in 1069, these tensions had been continually brewing between his increasingly centralizing court and the wild tribesmen. In particular, a group of Turkmen called the Nawakia. The origin of the Nawakia is very unclear, but in all likelihood, they formed out of the Irakia Turkmen, those tribes who had fled west and rampaged across Iran following the defeat of Arslan Israel at the hands of Mahmud of Ghazna which we discussed all the way back in episode 22 when we first started the story of the Seljuks. After rampaging across Iraq and raiding as far as Diyarbakir, the Irakiya had finally submitted to Tukhrul after the great sultan had conquered Iran. Tukhrul had of course encouraged them to raid Anatolia to get rid of them. The Irakiya then disappear from the historical record just as the Nawakiya enter it. And it appears very likely that essentially they were joined by other wild tribes who followed the Seljuks west, and a new tribal confederation formed. And critically, the Nawakia were principally led by members of the Seljuk dynasty. More uncooked members of the royal house who were not happy with the cooking of the court, who preferred the Turkish political tradition to the Perso-Islamic political tradition. Members of the royal family who perhaps saw that the tribes were the foundation of the throne, and maybe men who made the calculation that being a steppe leader, a lord of the grasslands, was a better route to power than playing Shah, particularly on the fringes of this new Seljuk empire. Alparslan's own brother-in-law, a man named Erbas Gan, was the key leader of the Nawakia. Another leader was a certain Seljuk prince named only as Ibn Khan, that is the son of the Khan, but in the long term, the most important of the Seljuk leaders of the Nawakia would turn out to be a man named Suleiman, a son of Kutalmish, and the man who will go on to be the first Seljuk sultan of Rum. And as I'm sure you can guess, Suleiman is going to play an incredibly important role in our story when we eventually get to the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum and what I'm going to call Informal Season 5. Now the Nawakia, like many of the wild Turkmen tribes, settled along the frontiers of the empire. This was largely because the court did not want them plundering the central lands of Iran, which would of course be intolerable 
to the settled Persian elites who were also critical to the regime's survival. The Turkmen tribes were therefore continuously pushed off into the Caucasus and Anatolia. This was, of course, a critical impetus of the Seljuk warfare against the Christian kingdom of Georgia and the Byzantine Empire. We should never forget that the Seljuk court had an ambiguous and fraught relationship with these Turkmen groups. The Turkmen were the root of the state's power, but as we have seen, they were also unpredictable and could rise up in revolt to threaten the state itself. Think of the revolt against Tukhrul that almost destroyed him. As such, the Seljuk court was very wary of them, even as it needed them. And so the more independent of these tribes were constantly encouraged to move to the fringes of the empire where they could conquer, but also where they would pose less of a threat to the regime itself. Particularly, powerful tribal confederations like the Nawakia, which were led by members of the House of Seljuk itself. But once out on the frontier, these groups were also harder to control, and they became in essence vassals of the court, but with their own independence and their own agenda. This was a fluid relationship, one that was constantly under negotiation, and a relationship that had the potential to become incredibly bloody and destabilizing if things went the wrong way. And as such, the court and the Nawakia came to greatly fear and distrust each other. The Nawakia came to mostly settle in what is now northern Syria and southern Turkey, sitting on the gates of Anatolia in a territory ruled by a patchwork of relatively minor Arab emirates. These emirates sat on the border between Seljuk and Roman and Fatimid spheres of influence. The most important of these was the emirate of Aleppo, and critically, these Arab emirs were Shia, and not just Shia, but vassals of the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt. The Fatimids loosely ruled the lands of the Levant and Syria as overlords of these Shia emirates. So the Nawakia, sitting on the fringes of the great Seljuk Empire, essentially began to hire themselves out to the vassals of the great rival to the Abbasid Caliphs. This was, of course, incredibly provocative to the Seljuk court, which depended on Abbasid recognition for its legitimacy. By the late 1060s, the Nawakia and the emirs of Aleppo had basically formed a powerful alliance that, in essence, defied the will of the court in Esfahan, and which Alparslan looked at with increasing unease and fear. And it would be this distrust of the Nawakia and the Shia emirs of Aleppo that would ultimately, and inadvertently, lead to the Battle of Manzikert. Because it turns out, that political developments in Constantinople would weave into this delicate, multilateral web of tension between the Seljuk court, the Nawakia, the emirs of Aleppo, the Fatimid caliphs, and the Abbasid caliphs. And in doing so, the relationship between Byzantium and the great Seljuk empire would be upended, ultimately to the ruin of the Roman Empire. So let's back up and look at what was happening in Byzantium and the relations between the Roman and Seljuk empires. From a thousand-foot view, the emergence of the great Seljuk empire recreated a powerful Islamic empire that could challenge the Roman empire. Ever since the anarchy at Samara, during the Intermezzo, the Romans had been able to take advantage of the disorder within the lands of Islam to reconsolidate, retrench, and expand again. From the Balkans through to Anatolia, Roman power again expanded, and various Armenian, Georgian, and Muslim local lords came to swear allegiance to the emperor in Constantinople. This reached its real consummation in the year 1045, when Ani was annexed directly into the empire. The various Armenian lords were given titles and pensions in Constantinople in exchange for the sovereignty of Armenia. This was coincidentally the same time frame as Tukhrul's conquest of Iran and the emergence of the Great Seljuk Empire. And with the Seljuks now reuniting much of the Islamic world, the dynamic that had governed the relations between the Roman Empire and the Muslim world during the days of the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates in a sense returned. Except, 
Instead of Arab raiders fighting for God and plunder, it was Turkmen raiders fighting for plunder and pasturage and also God on the side. For their part, the Seljuks saw Anatolia as the perfect release valve for their wild Turkmen followers, a release valve that also had the benefit of burnishing their standing as Ghazi warriors prosecuting the jihad. This resulted in both the great Seljuk campaigns, first the Kapetran and Manzikert campaigns during Tukhrul's reign, and then the Ani campaign led by Alparslan himself, and in near-constant raids by the Turkmen. And this formation of a mighty and aggressive Turkish empire on their frontiers, and constant raiding of the Turkmen, of course had an impact within the Roman Empire. As we discussed earlier in this episode, it caused the Romans and the Georgians to mend fences and begin to come together to oppose this mighty and young Seljuk Empire. And more importantly, this constant raiding would soon come to spark a political crisis within the Roman Empire itself. See, in the year 1067, the elderly Emperor Constantine Ducas died. I would highly recommend listening to the Amazing History of Byzantium podcast if you are interested in the details. For our purposes, it suffices to say that the final act of the dying emperor was to decree that only his young sons could succeed him. This enabled his wife, Eudokia, to rule as regent. But this didn't really work, and as the court in Constantinople was turned inwards, as Anatolia became denuded of troops after the death of the emperor, Turkmen raiders made increasingly devastating raids into Anatolia. This included both the Nawakia, riding north from Syria, and Turkmen more loyal to the House of Seljuk, riding west from recently reconquered Georgia, as we discussed earlier. The great city of Kayseri was even sacked in 1067 by a massive Turkish army led by princes of the Seljuk House. The contemporaneous Byzantine historian Michael Ataliatis relates, The barbarians then raided as far as Kayseri, pillaging and destroying everything and setting it all on fire. They broke into the great shrine of the illustrious hierarch, St. Basil, and tore it apart, looting all of the sacred furnishings. They even broke open the saint's tomb, but were utterly unable to profane his holy relics, for these were securely enclosed in a strong structure, which would have taken a long time to tear down. But they did take away the panels that covered the opening, which were skillfully and exquisitely made of gold, pearls, and precious stones. They completely wiped out the beauty of the place and departed from there after slaughtering many people in the metropolis of Kayseri and defiling the church. And Ataliates was actually a member of court and even a participant in many of these campaigns, and as such his history is invaluable, though of course biased. The Turkmen raiders then continued on from Kayseri, pillaging as far as Cilicia and the area around Antioch, before moving on into Syria, where they bullied the local Arab emir of Aleppo, the emir Mahmud, into inviting them to stay, whereupon they then plundered the Shia emirate of Aleppo basically just as brutally as they had done the Christian lands of Anatolia. Incidentally, Ataliates provides us with a rare description of Turkish steppe tactics, which shows just how infuriating the steppe nomads were to fight. The barbarians, who were prepared to shoot from a distance, easily wounded them, that is the Roman soldiers, from afar, while remaining untouched themselves, to the point where they were forced to go into the river to fight them there. At the same time, the enemy, who stood on the banks, kept shooting at the Romans, causing many casualties and forcing them to turn and run. These steppe tactics made the Turks truly terrifying to fight. They really were the super soldiers of the day capable of defeating much larger armies with their use of nomad horse archers. And so, as Turkish raids increased, Eudokia decided that she needed to provide stability to the court and get a powerful general to deal with the Turks. And so she married a general named Romanos Theoyenis in January 1068. And it will be Romanos Theoyenis who will face off against Alparslan at a place called Manzikert. Romanos Theoyenis was born in 1030 in Cappadocia into one of the most important noble families of Byzantine Anatolia. As a nobleman, he quickly joined the military and rose through the ranks, becoming a skilled and widely respected commander. 
he served the empire in the Balkans, ultimately rising to govern Bulgaria. But he came into conflict with Emperor Constantine Ducas and the mighty Ducas family, and after the death of the emperor, he appears to have made a play for the throne, to overthrow the infant sons of the dead emperor and their regent Eudokia. He was ultimately apprehended and convicted, but as he was waiting for his sentence, Empress Eudokia summoned him and informed him that instead of being executed, he was going to become her husband. She was making him emperor, with a mandate to save Anatolia from the Turks. And so, in March 1068, just after gaining the purple, the new emperor assembled a great army composed of the fabled Viking Varangian Guard, Western European mercenaries, Viking Normans from Sicily, and Turkish Pechenegs, the descendants of the Pechenegs who the Ochus had driven out of Central Asia and into the Balkans centuries earlier. Under Romanos, this army crossed the Bosphorus and began marching into central Anatolia, making for the city of Kayseri. Meanwhile, a massive Turkish raiding party from the east was also moving towards Kayseri. But upon hearing that a great Byzantine army was advancing to the city, the Turks instead diverted to the north and sacked the city of Niksar, Neocesarea in Greek. Romanos received the news of this while marching towards Kayseri, and so instead he diverted his forces to the north and made for Sivas, a city near Niksar. Upon hearing that the great Roman army was in the region, the Turkish raiders decided to make like a tree and leave, and began moving back to the east, laden with plunder. Romanos was able to defeat small numbers of Turkish forces, but he had to content himself with knowing that the Turks were at least leaving the region, though distressingly, Niksar itself seemed to remain occupied. Sitting in Sivas, Romanos decided that with northern Anatolia more or less secure, it just wasn't worth sticking around in the north. It was far more important to move further south and attack the Turks in Syria, the home base of the Nawakia. Perhaps through a show of force in the south, he could shore up Roman authority and again dominate the Emirate of Aleppo on the borderlands between his state and the great Seljuk Empire and the Fatimid Caliphate. Maybe even stop Nawakia raiding from Syria into Anatolia itself. And so the Roman army marched south basically sweeping all before it. Romanos entered Marash, quickly taking it before moving on to Ferrat. There, a local Nawakia emir rallied local Turkish forces and stopped the Roman army from entering into the vicinity of Malatya. Rather than attempt a deal with the Nawakia and the heavily fortified city of Malatya, Romanos decided to move into northern Syria. The Roman army descended from the mountains of the Anatolian plateau into the area around Aleppo itself. They ravaged the land and led the emir Mahmud of Aleppo to gather his forces and retreat to the east. And as he had done so often in the past, emir Mahmud called upon the Nawakia, promising them riches and rewards and pasturage to induce the Turkmen to fight for him. And remember that this Nawakia alliance with the Shia emir Mahmud the vassal of the hated Fatimid caliphs of Egypt, was noticed by Alparslan, who was becoming increasingly fed up with these wild Turkmen. As the Nawakia flocked to the banners of the emir of Aleppo, Romanos pursued them, moving east towards the city of Menbich under the command of a Nawakia emir named Umur Tekin. On November 20th, 1068, the Roman army appeared before the walls of Menbich and put it to siege. Umur Tekin rallied Emir Mahmud in the Nawakia and managed to launch several successful attacks against the Romans. But ultimately, the Nawakia were defeated by Romanos in a night attack. Menbich was then sacked. But the Roman army was now short of provisions, and it was not clear how long they could stay this far east. So after plundering the region, Romanos marched back to central Anatolia, quite pleased with himself. In a very successful campaign, he had shown the Turks what was what. A couple more campaigns like this, and maybe Anatolia could be safeguarded from the Turks. But this successful campaign by the emperor did not stop Turkish raids. In 1069, yet again, Turkish raiders struck out to raid Anatolia. 
massive hordes raided deep into central Anatolia from both Syria and the east. Turkmen forces overwhelmed a small Byzantine force sent out to oppose them. Upon hearing news of the approach of the Turkmen, Emperor Romanos organized three great armies, sending one to Malatya in the south, one to Sivas in the north, and personally rode out to lead the last army to Kayseri in the center. Nawakia forces around Kayseri were forced to pull back as the Emperor of the Romans appeared, and Emperor Romanos advanced to the River Firat and secured the region. But as the Emperor crossed the River Firat, Nawakia forces regrouped and launched an attack on Malatya and defeated the Byzantine army ensconced there. So even as Emperor Romanos was able to advance, Turkmen raiders broke through the defensive lines and crossed into central Anatolia. As the emperor reached Elazığ, a massive Turkmen army raced west towards the great city of Konya, called by the Romans Iconium. Konya was one of the most important cities in Anatolia and was destined to become the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. The Turks quickly sacked Konya, stripping it of its immense wealth, despoiling churches, and so on. You know, the usual. Immediately upon hearing that Konya had fallen, Emperor Romanos, sitting in Elazığ, mustered his forces and began racing back west. The Nawakia troops, however, learned of the return of the emperor and escaped south through the Taurus Mountains, passing into Cilicia and from there into northern Syria laden with plunder. They left behind them a trail of devastation. When the emperor made it to Kaiseri, it was too late. Romanos reportedly considered chasing after them, but according to Michael Italiates, it was Italiates himself who convinced the emperor that this would be pointless. The emperor was able to send out bands of troops to shadow the Turks, but to no effect. Dejectedly, he returned to Constantinople as autumn set in. Sitting in Constantinople in the winter of 1069-1070, Emperor Romanos Theogenes was in very bad spirits. Nothing seemed to be working to stop the relentless Turkish raids of Anatolia, raids that would certainly begin again when the snow melted. He began assembling an army to put under the command of Manuel Komnenos, the brother of the future Emperor Alexios. This army would march east in the spring to attempt to defeat the inevitable Turkish raids. And indeed, the Seljuk raids were inevitable, and unsurprisingly, the Turks would best Manuel's army. The Nawakia defeated this Byzantine force dispatched to meet them through the tactic of the feigned retreat, and Manuel himself was captured. They then proceeded to plunder across Anatolia. Michael Italiates relates, When the news of this reached the emperor, he and everyone else who had the best interests of the empire at heart were greatly disappointed. Even before the news became widely known, they heard more tidings to the effect that the Turks had taken by storm the city Khonai, that is Honaz near Denizli, and the very shrine of the arch-general, famous for its miracles and dedications, and that they had filled the place with slaughter and filth and polluted the church with many outrages. The Turkish raids just could not be stopped, and they were reaching further and further west every year. But then, perhaps shockingly to the court in Constantinople, emissaries began arriving from a group of the Turks, from the Nawakia themselves. As we have discussed in this episode and in prior episodes, the relationship between the wild tribes and the Seljuk court had always been very tense. Think of the revolt by Ibrahim Yanal, the revolt of Kavort, the way the Turkmen tribes had nearly destroyed Tuchel himself. And the leader of the Nawakia, Erbas Gan, had a particularly hostile relationship with Alparslan, his own brother-in-law. As Alparslan further centralized the state, Erbas Gan and the other princes of the House of Seljuk who led the Nawakia became increasingly resentful of the heroic lion and the feeling was very much mutual. For his part, Alparslan remembered well the revolts of the princes of the House of Seljuk, including the revolt of his own brother Kavort, and how these rebel Seljuk princes would use the wild Turkmen to advance their own interests and threaten the state. 
Things eventually came to a head over the Nawakia aid to the Shia emirs of Aleppo and the Fatimid caliphs. And Al-Barslan appears to have dispatched a small force to bring Erbas Khan himself to justice. So as his relationship with Al-Barslan deteriorated, Erbas Khan and the other leaders of the Nawakia decided to see if they could make a deal with the Roman emperor. Who better to help them oppose the Seljuk court? They offered the emperor an alliance, a promise to help him defend Anatolia against their cousins, likely in exchange for tribute and pasturage rights on the fringes of the empire. As Ataliates relates, It was that leader of the Turks who had defeated our army and captured our general, whom his own people were prepared to ransom for many talents, had of his own accord decided to join the emperor and was to bring the general along with him. He would rather be known as a servant of the emperor of the Romans than a grand commander of the Huns. He came to the imperial city, having left behind his own forces and made his decision to change sides. Though it was not fully voluntary. The reason was that the sultan governing Persia was ill-disposed towards him as though he were a traitor and had sent out one of his captains with an army against him. He was seized with fear and could think of no other way of escaping the danger than to seek refuge with the emperor of the Romans. And so Emperor Romanos made a fateful decision. He accepted Erbaskan's proposal. Romanos thought that he could get these fearsome Turkmen to cease their raiding of Anatolia and indeed fight off the other Turkmen groups who raided the country. Just as he had used the Pechenegs to fight the Seljuks, maybe the only way to beat the steppe riders was with other steppe riders. But in making an alliance with the Nawakia, Emperor Romanos had inadvertently planted the seeds of his own destruction. Because, of course, sitting in Esfahan, Alparslan, the heroic lion, totally flipped out when he learned that the Nawakia had joined up with the Emperor of the Romans. He had long feared the Nawakia, who had been hiring themselves out as muscle, not only to the emirs of Aleppo, but even the Shia Fatimid caliphs. And now they were allying with the Roman emperor. Who knew how that was going to turn out? So Emperor Romanos's new alliance with the Nawakia in essence sank his relationship with Alparslan and the Seljuk court, who above all feared the possibility of the tribes turning on the court. See, despite the sack of Ani and the constant raiding of the Turkmen, the Seljuk court and Constantinople actually had fairly good relations during the reign of Alparslan up until this point. The Seljuk court routinely told the Romans that there was actually very little they could do to control the Turkmen, and the Byzantines were eager to not antagonize their mighty neighbor. There even appears to have been a peace treaty entered into between the two empires. And for his part, Alparslan actually seems to have not really cared at all about Romanos marching into northern Syria. If anything, he was all for it. If the tribes were engaged in war with Byzantium, they weren't going to turn on the state. Remember that the Seljuk court saw Anatolia as a release valve for the wilder of the Turkmen and the ambitious members of the Seljuk dynasty. I mean, if the emperor of the Romans also wants to go attack that Shia heretic, Emir Mahmud of Aleppo, more power to him. And if the Roman emperor kicked in the teeth of the Nawakia a little bit, all the better. Maybe it would teach them some humility. But now, Romanos making an alliance with the Nawakia quickly threw a wrench into the situation and completely destabilized the relationship. Coupled with their service to the Shia emirs of Aleppo and the Fatimids, Alp Arslan saw this alliance as, in essence, a declaration of war by the Nawakia on the Seljuk state itself, though he was apparently largely unconcerned with the Romans themselves. Indeed, it wasn't so much anger at Emperor Romanos as anger at Erbas Ghan and the Shia Emir Mahmud of Aleppo, that heretic who supported the Fatimids and who sheltered and employed the Nawakia, that drove Alparslan to march west. And so, Alparslan set out to bring the Nawakia and the heretic Emir of Aleppo to heel. He dashed off a furious letter to Romanos, 
saying that unless the emperor of the Romans broke off his new alliance with the Nawakia, he would tear up the peace treaty between the Roman and Seljuk empires. Then, in September 1070, Alparslan began assembling an army to march into Syria to defeat Emir Mahmud and discipline the Nawakia. Accompanied by his son and chosen successor Melik Shah, the Sultan marched out of Iran. But leaving Iran, Alparslan decided to march through the Armenian borderlands with the Roman Empire, pillaging along the way as punishment for the emperor siding with the Nawakia, and of course, raising to the ground those remaining Byzantine defenses against Turkish raiding into Anatolia. The Armenian historian Matthew of Edessa wrote, In this same year, Sultan Alparslan, the brother, actually the nephew, of Sultan Tukrul, arose like a river and moved with a countless multitude. Like a towering black cloud full of impiety, he arrived in the land of the Armenians, bringing along destruction and bloodshed. He descended on Manzikert and took that city in a single day because of the absence of the city's Byzantine garrison troops. Those Byzantine guards had fled. Alparslan wrought destruction in the city due to the insult sustained by his brother, that is, Uncle Tuhrul, during the previous assault on the city, an insult which had not been avenged before his death. The great fortress city of Manzikert, which had withstood his uncle Tuhrul, had fallen to the heroic lion. Maybe that would be a lesson to Emperor Romanos not to ally with the enemies of the Seljuk court. According to Michael Ataliates, it was then garrisoned by a contingent of Turkish soldiers. With Manzikert now in his hands, Alparslan continued moving south and west to deal with his real enemies, the emirs of Aleppo, their Fatimid overlords, and their Turkmen supporters, the Nawakia. Now it does appear that Emir Mahmud of Aleppo was cognizant of the danger approaching. He knew how furious the Seljuk court was with him by this point. And so in 1070, Mahmud ordered that the khutbah be read in the name of the Abbasid Caliph and the Seljuk Sultan, a major concession to Seljuk sovereignty. Ibn al-Athir lays out the nakedly pragmatic reasoning behind this and has the emir saying to the assembled population of Aleppo, This is a new dynasty and a powerful state. We are threatened by them, since they think it is legal to shed your blood because of your beliefs. Our right course is to institute the khutbah in their name before there comes a time when neither what we say nor what we offer will benefit us. The population of the city, which was largely if not entirely Shia, did not take this well, and reportedly, they ripped out the rugs of the chief mosque in protest. But this so-called conversion did nothing to dissuade Alparslan. The heroic lion's massive army, numbering at least 30,000 strong, marched down from the Armenian highlands and towards northern Syria. On his way to Aleppo, Alparslan stopped by Diyarbakir. The very size of his army and the fearsome reputation of the Seljuk Sultan alone were enough to convince the local emir to submit. Reportedly, the emir rode out of the city personally and made ritual submission to Alparslan. He offered up as tribute 100,000 gold dinars. From Diyarbakir, Alparslan marched further west towards Edessa. He put the city to siege. According to the Armenian historian Matthew of Edessa, who began writing his history about 40 years later and may have even been alive in Edessa at this time as a young child, for 50 days, the Sultan remained battling against Edessa with fierce warfare, but was unable to accomplish anything. According to some sources, the local people managed to trick the Sultan by offering to pay 50,000 gold dinars on condition that he would burn his siege engines. But once the siege engines were burned, the locals reneged, and Alparslan could only be persuaded by Nizam ul Mulk that he should not march into the city and kill everyone because disciplining the emir of Aleppo was more important. I'm not sure that we can trust the veracity of that story because it really seems like Alparslan would not have burned valuable siege engines, and indeed, if he was tricked, I think it's likely that his vengeance would have been unstoppable. But the anecdote does appear in more than one history, so who knows? Stranger things have happened. Regardless, Alparslan finally reached Aleppo sometime in January 1071. As Alparslan began to put the city to siege, his Turkmen spread out and ravaged the entirety of northern Syria, 
raiding as far as Homs. The Emir Mahmud tried to convince Al-Barsan that now that he had recognized the Abbasid Caliph and ordered the khutbah to be read in the name of Al-Barsan and the Abbasid Caliph, there was no reason for Al-Barsan to do anything crazy. Of course, this didn't work. Al-Barsan reportedly said, What good is their making the khutbah when they make the azan with Come to the best of work, a reference to the Shia formulation of the azan, the call to prayer, which includes that phrase. They must appear and humble themselves before me. So Al-Barsan was implying that the population remained closet Shia, and their recognition of the Abbasid Caliph was merely nominal. And perhaps there is some truth in that, given the anger of the people at the pragmatic conversion of the emir. But Al-Barsan was likely more concerned with making an example of Emir Mahmud. Mahmud, for his part, was loath to appear before Al-Barsan and had some choice words for the envoy of the caliph. He was full of buyer's remorse that his conversion had not helped him out at all. According to the envoy of the Abbasid caliph in the city, Mahmud said to him, I shall obey you when the sultan is at some distance away. I asked for protection for myself and for my lands. Well, you have seen how the lands are destroyed and plundered, and I am required to appear before him. And so the siege commenced on the 3rd of April 1071. By all accounts, it was brutal. Wave after wave of Seljuk forces charged the city, only to be beaten back. According to Ibn al-Athir, Al-Barsan's own horse was struck out from beneath him by a catapult, though the sultan escaped unharmed. Eventually, as so often happens, both sides tired and realized that it would be for the best if they came to some sort of understanding. Ibn al-Athir mentions that prices were rising in the city, no doubt an indication that supplies were running low. And for his part, while Al-Barsan knew that he could ultimately overpower his enemy, he likely did not want to incur the cost that that would entail. And so, likely within a couple of months of its start, the siege was called off. There is a discrepancy in the sources as to the circumstances of its end. Ibn al-Athir says that Amir Mahmud came from the city at night and presented himself before Al-Barsan with his mother and daughter. The two women then pleaded for his life to the heroic lion, who graciously forgave him. Al-Barslan then presented him with robes of honor and reinstalled him in Aleppo as a now-loyal vassal. The anti-Seljuk author Ibn al-Jawzi says that Al-Barslan was driven from the walls of Aleppo in defeat by the victorious Emir Mahmud, crossing the Euphrates like someone in flight, and that he lost many men, horses, and camels. Now the truth lies somewhere between them, of course. And I think the most likely outcome is that Emir Mahmud and Al-Barslan negotiated a deal whereby Aleppo would stay in the hands of Mahmud, but he would recognize Al-Barslan's sovereignty, pay tribute, and read the khutbah in the name of Al-Barslan and the Sunni Abbasid Caliph. Indeed, we know for certain that the city thereafter became a vassal of the Seljuks, and it seems from other sources that the city remained officially Sunni and the khutbah continued to be read in the name of the Seljuk Sultan and the Abbasid Caliph. So I do tend to think that Ibn al-Jawzi's account that Al-Barsan was driven from the walls in defeat is a bit of wishful thinking and revisionist history from a particularly anti-Seljuk author. It is clear from later events that Al-Barsan forced the emir of Aleppo to bend the knee and become a Seljuk vassal. Aleppo was now subdued, and the Nawakia had lost a powerful patron in northern Syria. Indeed, following the submission of Aleppo, the Nawakia Confederation seems to have resubmitted to the rule of the Seljuks. Seeing the heroic lion ride west in force, the wayward Turkmen lords had been brought back to their senses, and the Islamic histories indicate a grudging Nawakia acceptance of Seljuk overlordship. Even Erbas Ghan, appears to have rejoined the fold and agreed to call off his nascent alliance with the emperor of the Romans. In order to maintain this new hegemony in the region, Al-Barslan decided to leave his son Melik Shah in the area to oversee both the emirs and the potentially troublesome tribesmen. From here, the Nawakia would march south to begin the Turkish conquest of southern Syria and the Levant. And shortly, they will also ride north into Anatolia 
which is about to be thrown into chaos. Because as Alparslan began marching back east to Azerbaijan in late May 1071, fresh off his success in disciplining the Nawakia, the Roman emperor, Romanos Theogenes, was also on the march. And he was leading a great and mighty Roman army to retake that fortified city that the heroic lion had recently snatched from him. The Roman army was marching towards a place named Manzikert. Manzikert. 